Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests for tasty facts, foodie secrets and more. This is part two of our tacos special, investigating the stories behind Mexico's most famous dish. In this episode, the mystery and rivalry of the invention of the modern fish taco. The modern fish taco originated in Baja, California. It's a sordid story of people stealing each other's ideas. Dirty shark meat. Some original guy, Mario, just grabbed sharks that had been left on the beach that no one else wanted to use, filleted them, fried them up, and created one of the most famous famous types of taco in the world. Will Megzi end up trying the strangest taco filling we've ever discovered? So are you gonna try a little bit of the uterus? I I don't know, is it such a bad thing to go through life and just have never tried uterus? And a much tastier taco has Tomo ready to quit podcasting altogether. I might have to take a break from podcasting and go and get tacos because, <laughs> um, yeah, we shouldn't talk about this vividly because now I need to eat it's it. so tasty. It's crispy, red, bright red, porky, juicy goodness. Oh my God. So welcome. This is part two of our tacos special talking all about the history of tacos and some of the best forms of tacos, some of the most delicious and tasty Mexican options. But if you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend you go back and listen to that first because there's definitely some bits in there that are going to help you sort of piece together the history puzzle. Because in this episode, we're going to be talking more about specific dishes rather than just the history of the taco as a dish in itself. We're going to be going more into the specifics of certain types of Mexican food styles that are freaking delicious, to be honest with you. Yeah. So jump back and listen to episode one right now if you haven't listened to that. But if you're wondering what's coming up in this episode, episode two, we discuss the historical movements and introductions of cooking styles that have led to some of Mexico's tastiest taco styles, including one of the most popular taco styles that is barely Mexican at all. Who knew it? And it actually only appeared in Mexico in the 50s or 60s. And it's everywhere today. It is. Massive. So how did colonization shape the world of tacos? That is one of the other things we're going to be talking about. The amazing introduction of certain ingredients that are now so Mexican, you'd be like, what? How is this not a Mexican dish? Well, it is. It is a Mexican dish now, but it wasn't always something that was available. But first up. A story that was less about colonial influences and more about local rivalries. The mystery of the invention of the modern fish taco. So fish wrapped in tortillas has undoubtedly been eaten in coastal areas of the Americas for a very long time. But the quintessential modern fish taco originated in Baja, California on the northwest coast of Mexico. So this style of fish taco follows a really standard form. You've got your battered, deep fried or grilled firm fish, topped with a creamy or mayonnaise-based sauce, typically with the addition of a spicy element like chipotle, and then finished with a salad. So perhaps some shredded cabbage or lettuce, squeeze of lime, and then, you know, wrapped in a tortilla, which is often a flour tortilla. Yeah, so our initial research regarding the original creation of the Baja fish taco showed that there was an ongoing debate between the coastal towns of Ensenada and San Felipe uh, sometime around the late 50s or early 60s. However, I discovered from some really solid primary source testimony that the original owners of fish taco stands from the early 60s and their children were actually interviewed in 2004 about how the fish taco evolved in the region. This source was only available in Spanish, which might explain why it hasn't been spread around as much in all the English websites. Uh, but the level of detail and sheer amount of named sources, like literally every person running a stall was actually named, first name, surname. It was just really detailed. It gives a much stronger story and much more believable history than the less detailed competing claim about San Felipe. 
because all of these taco guys were in Ensenada, whereas the San Felipe story is really based around some information provided by American tourists who visited there in the 70s. So it really sort of shows that the Ensenada story is going to be a lot closer to the facts. Yeah, it turns out that a new fish market was opened in Ensenada in 1957. And some sources quote it was about 1958, but around about that time. This particular market was known as the Mercado Negro, so the black market, because some of the seafood being traded there wasn't you know, entirely legal. They had illegal lobster, clams, abalone, which is gross anyway. But, uh, you know, it was sort of being sold under the table in this market. And in early 1960, a newcomer arrived to the market. He was called Mario, and he came to sell meat tacos originally to all the vendors who were out just shopping for fish. So over time, vendors asked Mario to actually cook up some of their fish instead of cooking them the regular meat tacos. At first, he used whatever was the most available fish in the market, like uh, they have curvina, sole, barracuda. And initially, he would just grill the fish because he would have been grilling the meat as well, so just using what he had. But customers then started asking him if he would be able to fry the fish instead. Yeah, but it just turns out that the fish he was using had just too many bones in it and it was really not good to make a fried fillet you know full of bones no one wants that but interestingly enough mario discovered another option uh, there's a local species of shark called angelito this was mainly seen as a waste product uh, from the day's catch no one wanted it and they just discarded it on the beach couldn't care couldn't sell it didn't want it so mario decided to collect all of these and he filleted them and turned them into fried fish tacos. So the fish that was not wanted turned into uh, something that people couldn't stop chowing down on. Yeah, and they had no idea what fish he was using at the start, I'm sure. But those first tacos were just sold plain, just fish on tortilla, nice and simple. But quickly, to make it a little bit more exciting, they were in adding ingredients like green chili, tomato and onion, all of the standards, and they created this thing called the flag sauce. Well, they didn't create it. This is definitely something that had been done before, but the flag sauce is so popular in Mexico. Anything that has green, red, and white in the dish, people go crazy for, because it's like this patriotic thing. It's the colors of the Mexican flag. Yes. So this was the first evolution towards the modern Baja fish taco. At this point, the fried fish came unbattered, uh, unlike the famous fish tacos that we know today. But this was all about to change. Yes. So in 1963, after a very turbulent year looking for work in the region, a Mr. Zerafino Mancias Fortuna. Wow, that's enough. That is. That's a lot. He decided to open a taco stand in the market as well. Everyone was getting in on this business because they realized that people just wanted to eat fish tacos. So he knew that if he was going to compete with the people who were already there, he needed to provide something of superior taste style and presentation. So this is when he began experimenting with coating fish in flour, which was eventually batter made with egg, flour, um, mustard, and maybe milk. And now today, some other ingredients have been tested as well. People put beer in the batter and mm. um, oregano. Everyone's got their own different variation on the mix. So then Zerafino would also add the flag sauce, of course, that was really popular, but he decided to start making the tacos more appealing looking by also adding lettuce or cabbage on top. Zerafino, he had just revolutionized the fish taco. So you're probably wondering what happened to poor old Mario, the pioneer of the very first fish taco. Well, apparently he was also known for enjoying his liquor a little too much. And uh, it just turned out that inconsistent hours and, you know, this enhanced competition meant he ended up selling his business in about 1963 to another budding entrepreneur. His name was Socorro Negrete Rivera. And from that, it actually was business as usual for the next four years. But in 1967, the government came in, shut it all down for being, you know, a little dodgy, dodgy black market sort of place. And uh, that left all the vendors out in the street. So with the market closed, what would happen to all those delicious fish tacos? The story concludes shortly, but first. It's been a lot of taco talk. So we think it's time to get some tacos 
in our faces. And we couldn't make it to Ensenada to eat fish tacos in this particular episode, so instead we caught up with a local restaurateur in Merida, Mexico, who was heavily influenced by the traditional Baja fish taco as a child. And he now owns a chain of seafood restaurants called El Pez Gordo, and they serve both fish and seafood tacos and a lot of other really exciting menu options. My name is Julian Trujillo. We are in Merida, Yucatan, Mexico right now in El Pez Gordo. When I was a kid, we went to Baja, my, all my family, and I, I was like six or seven years old. And we crossed from, from Mazatlán to, to La Paz by boat. And I remember when I, when I arrived in La Paz, the, the, the tacos, those tacos, the, the real tacos, like, a, like the one that you have fish and chips, is, is the, how do you call it? In the batter, like in, the batter, in yeah. flour. Yeah, in flour, yeah, flour. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, right, uh, when you when you go down uh, from the from the ship, right there, the tacos, hey, tacos, tacos. And I tried, I, I, I remember that clearly. From six years old. Yeah. So. It's almost time to eat. Although we tried the classic Rosario style deep fried battered fish, uh, it's fair to say that taco innovation over the years does mean that sometimes the classics get improved upon. At El Pez Gordo, you'll find some exciting innovations. And one of our favorite fish tacos was the crunchy, which literally means crunchy. They're using cornflakes to make it really crunchy, so it's not just the standard batter, it's also then got that super extra crunch. And they are all topped with red cabbage, so it's just got that nice colorful look. Just a, a little squeeze of lime. This is the essential fish taco experience. You have to put a little bit of lime on. I want to try and catch the crunch. It's a really big serving as well. I don't entirely know how I'm going to get my mouth around it. All right, let's see if I can get this on sound. Makes my mouth now covered in sauce. Yeah, I can feel it. It's everywhere. But it's so worth it. That was an awesome crunch. What are your thoughts on the very messy <laughs> cornflake crusted fish? Mm. Light, fresh, firm fish with no fishy flavor at all. It's just got that perfect full fish texture. But the additional cornflakes are taking this to a new level beyond the regular battered taco. I like the addition of the cornflakes. Crunch is really cool. Adds a crunch and a little bit of a sweetness to it as well that you don't get in that traditional batter. Alright, last little bite. Yeah, I'm currently hinting right now that I want some more of the cornflake. Because <laughs> it was good, I liked it a lot. Can I do this in my serious podcast voice? No. Oh, it's cool. Earlier, we learned that Mario, the inventor of the modern fish taco, has sold his converter shark taco business to a man named Zucoro Rivera. But then, in 1967, the government closed the market, leaving all the vendors without a place of business. How would this affect the future of the fish taco? Let's find out. <laughs> it's my Batman voice. That's ridiculous. <laughs> So, Socorro, who had bought Mario's business, he actually decided to leave town after this happened. And uh, along with all of those improvements that Zerafino had made... Everyone by, was just stealing each other's yeah, ideas. It was center. just like, oh, he's doing it better, let's steal that. So he went, okay, well, instead of trying to find a new spot here and compete with everyone else for the same tacos, let's move down to San Felipe. And this is where San Felipe comes into the story. So in 1967, which is like a full seven years after those first fish tacos were being sold at the market, Socorro takes his son and his family and they go and trade down in San Felipe instead. So it seems that this later arrival is exactly when San Felipe became famous for the fish tacos. And it wasn't until 1974 that a young surf fan and American tourist, Ralph Rubio, enjoyed his first taco down in San Felipe. And then he inquired about the recipe and eventually he actually opened his own very successful fish taco chain, Rubio's, in California in 1983, which is still running today. So seemingly... The mythology of the inception of Rubio's, which of course has been publicized all around the US because it's a huge chain. Ralph Rubio talks about his history uh, of starting the fish taco after going to San Felipe. So it seems that's where this mythology has actually stemmed from. It's completely changed the face of where we believe the fish taco originated just because his success has been so much bigger 
than the success of fish tacos in Ensenada. On a national and international scale, that's really what's made the difference. So the story sort of rewritten itself, it seems. Back in old Ensenada, after the market closed, some vendors moved to other parts of the town and continued selling their fish tacos. Maria Juana Cordova Vargas, who started in the black market in 1965, she continued to sell fish tacos at the new fish market that opened up and was still doing so at the time of the interview that we found that all this information has come from in 2004. So she's been selling tacos for a while. Yeah, there was a lot of people quoted in that article who were in their 90s, people who originally were there when all this was happening. So in 1969, specifically, one of the original permanent fish taco restaurants that still operates today was actually first open. That's called Tacos Phoenix. So that's still there in Ensenada. You can go down and try that out. It's one of the oldest places that's still trading today. Another interesting influence we discovered as well was about the wave of Japanese immigration that came into the area in the 1950s because they brought with them this cultural cooking of uh, tempura, the light tempura batter. And the fish taco really does have that same sort of essence in the batter. It's always very light. So it's possible even that the original fish taco entrepreneurs had been influenced by seeing this tempura being cooked by the Japanese immigrants and had then used that in their own cooking styles. But uh, that's a little bit about the history. So you can tell your family next time you're sitting around having some fish tacos, you can drop some interesting facts on them and look like an absolute taco genius. Yeah, it's a sordid story of people stealing each other's ideas, moving to another city. Dirty shark mate. <laughs> There's even some sources online that I found where they were interviewing uh, fish taco vendors in San Felipe and saying, do you know that Ralph Rubio created this 150 plus chain of restaurants in the US after coming and eating here in San Felipe, getting a recipe and going back to the States. And they're like, no, don't even know who he is. <laughs> no idea, I'm, but I'm glad that other people are eating fish tacos around the world. It's a lot of stealing. Didn't you say that there was a, a chick that went and worked for one of these famous guys for like two weeks, got the recipe and they went, thanks, and opened up a taco shop pretty much just across the market from them? Well, allegedly, I think one of the people we mentioned during this was actually that person, but I'm not gonna state specifically who it was because <laughs> I believe if they're still operating today or their family is, we don't want to get sued. Maybe this happened, maybe this didn't happen. But people were just sharing ideas. They were stealing the taco ideas. If someone was making more sales, they went, we gotta do that. We gotta put cabbage on, we gotta put lettuce on, we gotta put sauce on top. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. Some original guy, Mario, just grabbed sharks that had been left on the beach that no one else wanted to use, filleted them, fried them up, and that's created one of the most famous types of taco in the world. Still to come in this episode, the Mexican obsession with pork. I'm pretty obsessed with that as well. Mm -hmm. An old world cooking style, which has turned into one of Mexico's favorite taco fillings. Plus, the insanely popular pork taco style that has embedded itself as a Mexican classic, but whose roots are barely Mexican at all. As we mentioned in episode one of this taco special, pork was not available in the Americas at all until after colonization had happened. Yep. So next up, we explore how pork and its cooking methods imported from the old world have shaped one of Mexico's favorite tacos, carnitas tacos. The carnitas is not as famous around the world as certain other styles, but in Mexico... They are huge! It's super popular, it's a must-try, and it's actually pretty easy to find all over the country. So, carnitas. Uh, carnitas literally means little meats. And these pork tacos are famous across Mexico, and sometimes regarded as the oldest pork taco style in the world. More on that shortly. But first, what makes up a carnitas taco? What's it all about? All right, so a carnitas is what they refer to as a snout-to-tail meal. And everything in between. So it typically involves using absolutely every part of the pig, from some of the friendlier cuts, which are called maquisa. It's um, like a muscle. So the maquisa means muscle. That's the literal translation. So it's the friendly, nice, muscly bits, like the lomo, which is like just the, the, the nice fillet muscle. Uh, in the middle of the pig, or, you know, shoulder, 
These things that people are quite used to eating. Yeah, it's the more common cuts of the pig is the makisa. That's the nice bits. Yeah. They do then delve into the more exotic parts, some of which are called, uh, one is bouche, which is the stomach. Mmm. Mm, stomach. Yeah. Oreja, which is ear. And ear is actually a really popular dish all across Mexico, not just in in your carnitas. It, they just really like pork's ear. Pig's ear seems to be a thing going on. I said pork's ear. Mm. <laughs> the old ear of pork. Oh, yes. Uh, speaking of interesting parts of pork, the trompa, which is actually the pig's snout. There you go. The snout makes it in. We said it was the snout's tail meal. It there really is. It's all there. Even the most unexpected cut is called nana. What? Nana tacos is... Uterus. Uterus is the nana. It's the mother meat of <laughs> uterus, nicely sliced and thrown in a taco. But with all this strange offal going on, if you just can't decide which offal part you actually want to eat. It's a hard choice. It is difficult. Mm. Then you can always order the very popular sertida, which is an assortment of mixed bits of the day. It's Pretty much whatever is not a defined part of the pig, if it's not uterus and it's not nose and it's not whatever else, then all the other bits of meat that are there and being cooked up, that'll just get thrown together. Yeah. It's like a mix-up of leftovers. Now, we do need to point out that the cooking style is really important when it comes to carnitas. So the way they do it is they get loads of kilos of pork. And everything. 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 All of those bits that we're talking about. And then they slow cook it in lard for many, many, many hours. So they're just, they're essentially just cooking pork in its own fat. For many hours, so it's so that sounds good. nice see, and soft. That's where the goodness comes from, yeah. We started off by making it sound like this is a weird dish that no, you don't want to eat. No, it's tasty. But actually, pork slow-cooked in its own lard for many hours is pretty good. Can't go wrong with that. Uh, they do also add salt, but beyond that, it really does depend from restaurant to restaurant what their additional ingredients are. So some places add milk, some places add beer, even soda. And then you can also throw in like black pepper, garlic, or maybe like chicken broth powder. Really just depends on who is cooking up the carnitas that day. Yeah, it does change up. So after they have cooked that up, they serve it in a corn tortilla, whichever cut you want. And you get a variety of the regular sides, the usual salsas that you get in Mexico, things like chopped onion, cilantro, maybe some pico de gallo or a chili salsa. So let's dive in and actually eat these things because we headed to a carnitas restaurant here in Merida and we went and ate some of the stuff, including uterus. And a quick warning that our description of this dish gets a little bit graphic in places. So if you are squeamish, you might want to skip on three or four minutes so that you don't have to listen to that bit. We're now at a true carnitas place because they have this giant amount of lard just sitting in this huge metal vat in the middle of the restaurant. And it's just got these, uh, I guess, giant colanders full of different meat parts that they dip straight into this vat of lard and we're talking like 10 gallons of lard in the bottom that's how big this thing is i've decided to to order a uterus pork shoulder mix there's just uterus straight up it's a little intense and a bit scary see see we've got a bit of the the pig uterus and it does look odd I'm gonna try it. Let me try and explain. It looks like um, something created by the devil. <laughs> it's basically like a tube that's been sliced into like one centimeter, sort of half inch chunks. And then it's just got this very small opening in the middle of the tube. And the periphery, the internal periphery of that tube looks like a jaw with teeth. Soft round teeth, so it does look strange. I'm gonna eat this, so that it's gonna be maybe a bit odd. It's not that bad. Because it does look disgusting. I think psychologically, I've made myself dislike it more than I actually do. It tastes fine. It's like eating sort of the the slightly fatty cartilage bit around a pork knuckle, but the texture is a bit softer than that. And of course, it's been slow cooked in lard for a long time. 
how are you dealing with the psychological aspect of it? I'm trying not to gag. <laughs> but it actually tastes fun. So, are you going to try a little bit of the uterus? I, I just, I don't know. Is it such a bad thing to go through life and just have never tried uterus? I, I think not. I don't know. It's where you came from. Shouldn't you? <laughs> no. you, you taste your origins? No, I didn't eat my way out. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't eat your way out and you don't want to. No, I'm fine. You take one for the team. So, aside from the fact that that uterus is a very strange cut to have in a taco. It's definitely one of the odd things I've eaten in my life. Very odd. Also, the fact that when you go to these restaurants, there's that big vat of bubbling lard just in the middle of the room. It's not the prettiest sight. It's not the most appetizing sight. And it's probably going to be something that would really put off, you know, people unless you're a more adventurous foodie. But... You should give it a try. Yes. Because, I mean, seriously, open kitchens are a bit of a fad right now. It's something that's going on. Everyone wants an open kitchen. But when it's an industrial-sized stainless steel vat full with colanders of pig parts being dipped into gallons of lard. They love lifting it up and showing it to you. Oh, look what's in this one. Oh, look what's in this tripe. one. Oh, this one's got tripe. It's delicious. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of strange. It's not exactly where the open kitchen movement was going. I don't think that's what they intended when they developed that. But, you know, they want you to know we have the pig. It is cooking. Here it is. That said, the friendlier cuts like the maquisa that we mentioned before, the muscle meat, uh, and costillas, which is the rib meat, that is super tasty and you really need to give them a go. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to one of these restaurants that has the vat in the middle of the restaurant. You can go to a place that maybe has that behind closed doors and just pretend that it doesn't exist and just eat the tasty food. Yeah, that whole vat in the middle of the restaurant thing seems to be, I don't know whether it's a traditional thing. We've seen it in some of these restaurants, but not all of them. So it's definitely not a guarantee and if you are a little bit squeamish about how they're cooking it up and you just want to be served a taco with meat that you know what it is in it, then you can do that as well. You don't have to go for the craziness. The exact location of the invention of carnitas is strongly contended. In fact, there's a really long origin story to how carnitas even became a thing in Mexico. And it starts pre-colonial era. It's medieval. It's gone all the way through to the colonization of Mexico by Europeans and has now become a really important part of modern culinary history here in Mexico. So effectively the slow cooking of meat in its own rendered fat has actually been around for so long that no one can really pinpoint when they started. The most defined version of it that you might have heard of is actually from Europe and it's called confit, which is a style that the French have definitely said, this is ours. Confit, we... Very oh, famous no. for doing it. This is what we do, although they almost certainly did not invent it specifically, but they definitely popularized it and claimed it, and now it's like one of their famous things. So it's clear this style of confit is very popular in France, and they have been doing this for a very long time, way before the Americas were colonized. Yeah, so confit was actually used as a method to preserve meat. That's why it's so old. They're like, what do we do? It keeps going off. They're like, oh, why is my meat so rotten? It smells like a food from England. And so they came up with this way uh, to preserve the meat before the time of refrigeration. Yeah, people didn't have a fridge in their house, so what are you going to do? Yep. So after the meat had been slow cooked, the fat then solidifies over the top and it creates an airproof layer on the meat. And that way it could actually be stored for months and the meat underneath the fat layer was still fine. And it's likely that once this style had arrived in France, it then moved through to Spain. And there's documentation sort of showing that at least by the Middle Ages, there was already a similar Spanish version of this dish called Lomo de la Orsa. Uh, and that was being made in Spain. And that involved pork. Yeah. And it seems that the Spanish might have brought this cooking method pretty quickly with them over to Mexico. I don't think they wasted any time no, at all. They're, they're like, like, it's going to be hot over there. We're going to need a way to keep the meat fresh. Yes. Let's do it. So actually, the earliest part of the story in the Americas dates back to about 1521. And that's when pigs were first introduced to Mexico. The Spanish first brought pigs to Cuba. And then from Cuba, they brought them over to Mexico. And there's actually a guy, Bernal Diaz del Castillo. He actually accompanied the conquistador Cortes, and he documented actually the bringing of the pigs 
from Cuba to Mexico, and some of which were made to make this famous feast that they talk about in all of the internet stories. All of the internet. All of the internet. <laughs> in the no, original documentation. If you, if you look up a lot of people telling about the beginning of tacos and the bringing of pork and everything to Mexico, this is the party that, they, that they're talking about. When they had a feast for all the captains and soldiers, which was August 13th, 1521, in the village of Coyoacan. Thank you. And that's now the southern suburb of Mexico City. So this guy, Bernal, was very specific about how he was documenting everything. The fact that we've even got the date that they had this feast is quite amazing. But a lot of the online sources, they give this sort of impression that it was like some big taco fest and this was the invention of the pork taco. But the original text... I read through it. It's in Spanish. So I read through it a bit in Spanish and translated some of it as well. It doesn't actually indicate that there was a specific type of cooking style for the pig. Uh, it could have been cooked in its own lard. It could have just been roasted on a barbecue. It's not really specific. It's just like, there was a feast of the pig. No. And nor does it even actually mention that they made tacos. A lot of people are like, oh, this is when the first taco happened. It's like, no, they used tortillas to eat pork. But they didn't mention in the text that there was even any tortillas at that meal. Literally, the entire text is just saying, we brought pigs over from Cuba so that we could have a massive feast of pigs. Yeah. So people assume that because the feast was hosted by the locals that tortillas must have been involved and they probably were quite possible but there's no actual document saying that they were definitely involved no entirely the idea that the first ever tacos were eaten back in 1521 it seems well, the to first be ever pork tacos yeah it seems to be mostly sitting in mythology rather than actual historical record as jeffrey pilcher discusses the origin of tacos today as a quintessential Mexican street food, it just doesn't quite fit with a conquistador party theme in terms of, you know, social context. These people coming over from Spain thought they were pretty top shit. They're not going to be eating dirty local tacos, right? If there were tacos, which in episode one we're saying they weren't really tacos. They were not. It was just tortillas next to your meal. We do know Spaniards were would have been used to dipping bread in stew, so maybe... You know, if there were tortillas, they would have ripped them up, dabbed them at the meat, lift, you know, used it as a spoon sort of thing. There's just really no definite proof of how pig was eaten back at this time. But uh, the thing that we know 100% that is true, before that sort of week or month when they brought the pigs over for that feast, there were definitely no pigs in Mexico. They did not exist. They came from the old world. So there is just no way at all that any sort of pork taco could have been eaten before 1521. It is not physically possible. It never happened. So that's fact. Can you imagine being a local back then and they, you lived your whole life and then suddenly they introduce, they're like, yeah, try this. this is, we call this pork. And you're just like, oh, oh my God. Oh, what is this? Oh my. Like, it would be incredible. Like, you've gone from having to eat turkey for your entire life, bleh, yeah. to being able to have pork cooked in its own lard. Um, yeah, the whole world just changed. Amazing. But yes, this story is about tacos. So yeah, as we sort of discussed in episode one, the tacos didn't become a dish until much later. Wasn't, wasn't happening at this party. Nah. So, you know, all of those online resources that are saying that this was the invention of the pork taco in 1521, no, it doesn't it doesn't really fit with any of the the anthropological evidence, any of the etymological evidence. It just doesn't make any sense. People are eating pork, people are eating tortillas, perhaps, but that's pretty much all that was going on. But as for the modern carnitas that exist today, the exact location where that was invented is very much contended. Everyone wants to say it's, it's us, isn't it? Oh, we, we always. It. Everyone's always, like, oh, yeah. no, no, my grandfather did this or whatever. It's quite an old dish. Perhaps carnitas was going on before carnitas tacos were invented. Doesn't seem to really be a definite. It does seem at the moment that the state of Michigan, it seems to sort of have the strongest claim going for them, and specifically the town of Quiroga, that is often cited as ground zero for Canitas, with the Canitas of Michigan gaining really the most 
popularity around the country. They love it. Yeah, like you go to all these different states and it's always like carnitas de Michoacan. Everyone's like, oh, these are the real carnitas. So whether that's where it was definitely invented, perhaps, perhaps not, but it has become the popular home of the carnitas and those are the ones that everyone seems to want to eat. So what have we learned today? Pork. Pork is good. Pork can be cooked in its own fat. Mm. Pork cooked in its for own a long time. for a really long time. So yeah, the Spanish brought the pork to Mexico. So, so they, Spain they did it. a good thing. They did, yeah. They, they did lots of bad things, but mm -hmm. they definitely did a good thing bringing the pork. Exactly. Uh, we also learned that they had a pork party. Who doesn't like a pork party? Everybody wants a pork party. Mm. We also learned that uh, some of the bits are not so appetizing, but you probably should give them a try anyway. From one very porky taco to another, but it wasn't always a pork dish. And it definitely started life a long way away from Mexico. It's one of our personal favorites, Tacos Al Pastor. So Tacos Al Pastor is probably one of the most popular taco styles in Mexico. It is everywhere. As far as Mexican exports of food goes, this is definitely one that's uh, invaded the US. I don't think it's invaded Europe yet, but there is, for you. there is a reason for that, which you'll uh, start to understand as we go through this, because although it is one of Mexico's very, very tasty, tasty popular tacos, we're not 100% sure that it's really a Mexican dish, no. and there's a lot of reasons for that. But right. first of all, let's go through what exactly is tacos al pastor for those of you who haven't had it before. All right. So al pastor tacos, you're looking at thin pieces of pork, which are marinated in an acid of some sort. Uh, not, you know, Vinegar, not perhaps? bad acid, like no. food acids. Tasty like acids. Tasty acids, not burny acids. Uh, of course, chili. And then they also have a blend of other spices, which one of those things, again, it just varies from vendor to vendor. They have their own secret recipes that they hold very closely to heart, and they don't tell anyone without killing them. But one of the ingredients that's definitely present in a good al pastor, at least, is achiote, which is the bright red paste made from annatto seeds. It just gives this beautiful orange-red color to this stack of pork because they stack all of these thin slices of pork onto a vertical rotisserie to form like a tower of pork. Bright red tower of pork in the shape of a spinning top. And the name for this tower of pork is the trompo, which quite literally in Spanish means spinning top. So that's it. Imagine this. It is a giant, giant tower of meat. It's beautiful. And the meat is cooked in that vertical rotisserie style. So sometimes with gas burners, sometimes with charcoal. The chef, they'll rotate the meat to make sure it crisps up on the outside. And then they shave off these slices of crispy cooked pastor, just continuously going throughout the entire service. And it's just amazing. So this... I, I might have to take a break from podcasting and go and get Tacos Al Pastor now. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, we shouldn't talk about this like this vividly because now I need to eat it's it. It's so tasty. It crispy, red, bright red, porky, juicy goodness. Oh, my God. God. The thing we've really been surprised about is the different sizes of the trompo. So you can get like your little corner place that just has a tiny little trompo that they'll set up. But we've also seen really massive ones as well. It really just depends on the demand of how many people are coming by and ordering some al pastor. Generally, we found that the typical trompo is about 15 kilograms. This is maybe 30 pounds. Yep. And it can fill about 600 small tacos a night. That is the standard. And once you've put this delicious red meat on your tortilla, typically corn, but uh, there are some others we'll talk about in a second, then you top that with the regular sort of condiments, onion, cilantro, and the special addition just for pastor is pineapple. They add that on as well. A few little bits of sweet pineapple going with that slightly mildly spiced juicy pork. Very, very nice. And then, of course, on the side, you have your choice of additional sauces. So you can choose whether you want to spice it up or if you just want to put just a little bit of... Uh, Salsa verde or yeah, something. A little nothing, green. Nothing too green aggressive. Sauce. Yeah. 
Uh, as well as the regular corn tortillas version, we personally love something that's called um, al pastor gringas. And that is served on a wheat tortilla and they serve it with cheese. And there's a little story behind pastor gringas. Uh, of course, you know, the word gringo it refers to Americans who are uh, north of the border. Uh, actually, just Americans. This is something we learned recently. It's, it's only uh, North Americans who are gringos. From Australia, from Europe, you are not a gringo. But back to the story, it's head. The name of the dish has nothing to do with gringos liking a wheat tortilla or cheese on their Which pastor. is what we thought. We That's initially we thought we were like, oh, gringo tortilla because it's got cheese and it's on wheat. No, it actually is because the apparently these guys at the restaurant saw the tortilla on the hot burner and it was starting to sort of crisp up and burn a bit and they thought it that it was bubbled up with those little tiny spots that appear on tortillas like little burnt spots yeah and they thought that that resembled like a white girl burning in the hot sun <laughs> in the mexican hot sun and so that's where it got the name the gringus taco because they're just making fun of white people yeah. Make in front of me. No matter how you decide to eat your pastor, though, uh, in any style, it is awesome. But those pastor gringos with the cheese and the wheat tortilla, I love them the most. Mm. So let's go right back to the start. The description we were talking about, a vertical rotisserie of meat. Now, if that sounds like it bears quite a resemblance to the shawarma and doner kebabs of Europe and the Middle East. You would be right. This is where the connection comes in. It is actually based off the same tradition. So uh, we've got our guest expert, Jeffrey Pilcher, back to tell us a little bit more about the history of Al Pastor. The first tacos brought by these Lebanese migrants in the early 20th century were actually referred to as tacos arabes. And they were, they were made with lamb and they were served in, in wheat flour tortillas like a pita. And there are still restaurants in, in the city of Puebla from the 1930s, uh, still operating from the 1930s, that sell these tacos arabes. So that very first pre-pastor taco was actually the tacos arabe, which still exists today. Although it's also cooked on a vertical rotisserie, it doesn't have the bright red crazy color of the achiote that modern pastor has. And uh, it was actually started with lamb because that's what the immigrants who had moved over to Mexico would have eaten at home. And so they were rearing lamb here and they were using that rather than pork. And that's where it gets the name, Al Pastor. This is like the foundation pre-Pastor where the name was invented was because it's Al Pastor means shepherd style, like Pastor is a shepherd. So that's exactly why the dish has been called that because of the original lamb, even though now it is all pork. Yeah. The oldest surviving record of the original Tacos Arabe is from the city of Puebla. And this actually comes down to two restaurants which are still in operation today, mm -hmm. which is pretty awesome. So we've got Antigua Taqueria La Oriental and Tacos Arabes Baghdad. And they both fiercely claim to be the creators of the dish. It's a tricky one. Both were originally founded in 1933. So if these were the first restaurants, they were supposedly opened by immigrants from Iraq, not in fact Lebanon. Yeah, so the connection with Al Pastor is Lebanese, and we'll get into that in a second. But the original Tacos Arabes could have been brought here first by people from Iraq instead. Who knows? We're not 100% sure, but that is what these restaurants claim, and they are currently the oldest restaurants available to claim things yeah. <laughs> in that industry. So that's what we got. Yep. And those original tacos were served with lamb and tahini and yogurt sauce, which you would imagine from your kebabs and stuff like that. That sounds... It was very Middle Eastern yeah. at the time when it first started. And of course, these have today evolved to be made with pork and quite often served with chipotle mayo. Yeah. So even before Pastor, once they'd started converting the tacos arabe into pork, they were also serving it with a more local condiment like chipotle mayo rather than the tahini and yogurt sauce of days gone by. But let's talk about the al pastor itself. After these original shawarmas had happened, 
what led into the Alpa store becoming a thing and becoming, well, really a Mexican craze. Everybody loves it. Yeah. So while Iraqi immigrants may have been the first to adapt shawarma to the Mexican palate, there was this huge wave of immigration from Lebanon during the Israel-Lebanon war, which was happening in 1948. So it's a little bit after the 1933 time where those Iraqi restaurants opened. A few years later, a whole bunch of new immigrants started turning up. Yeah, and these immigrants joined the already present Lebanese community in Mexico City. And so by the time the 1960s came around, you know, Mexico City experienced this culinary boom and they had the opening of trendy restaurants and much more experimentation was happening with cuisine at that time. And many, many, many of the people in this region lay claim to being the inventors of Al Pastor and once again, the facts tend to be lost in history. Yeah, we don't have a definite, this was the day Pastor was first served or anything like that. It was more of an evolution than a, a one day it just happened sort of thing. But there are definitely two really strong contenders that seem like the most likely Al Pastor restaurants. El Jaquito in Mexico City, which was founded in 1959. And it's really just a tiny hole in the wall place. And they were just starting perhaps to feature the new pastor style in the 60s. So maybe they started with Tacos Arabe and then slowly diversified and changed up the ingredients a little bit and started putting agiote in. Or maybe they saw someone else do it and then went, we should do that as well. We the, don't know. Yeah. The other place that lays claim is El Tizoncito. And that's actually now a really popular chain, which was originally founded in 1966. And they came straight out of the gates with Pastor being their number one product from day one. So were they going, well, we've got an idea for a product. Let's open a restaurant. Or did they go, we saw someone else selling this and they're doing really well, so let's rip off their idea and open a restaurant. We don't know! Don't know, don't we know, don't know. Don't know. Uh, also a thing we don't know is where the addition of pineapple comes from. Nobody no, seems to know. Don't know. It just happened. They went, what else can I put on this? Uh, got some pineapple, let's do it. But it works. Yep, it's actually a really good combo, adding that just little sweet hit, just a tiny sweet and slightly sour pineapple flavor, works really well with the pork. So there are a lot of people that claim to be the first people that created Al Pastor. Whoever originally created it, it's now, who knows. But it, it, one thing we do know is that it is now fully integrated into the Mexican food culture. And I definitely think Mexicans see it as a truly Mexican dish. They love it. We love it. Yeah, it, they've definitely embraced it as their own. Yeah, and apparently a lot of Mexicans, when you tell them that uh, Al Pastor is actually Middle Eastern, they're like, what? Are you serious? This is a Mexican dish. And well, I mean, I guess it is. This is the problem with food fusion. You've taken an original cooking style from somewhere else and created something that really does embody Mexico, the pork and the salsas and the cilantro and the pineapple it's all very Mexican. Yeah. It, yeah. So is it Middle Eastern? Is it Mexican? It's both. I think it's both. But it's become a Mexican icon. And I'm glad of that because it's freaking delicious. Agreed. Wow. Our exploration of tacos is getting close to be over, but it doesn't have to be over quite yet. No, in fact, if you are already subscribing to us, you will very soon, perhaps already, depending on when you happen to be listening to this, I don't know, uh, you'll already have access to our bonus episode on another of our favorite taco styles in Mexico. And this one is pretty hard to find outside of the country. Yeah, this episode is only for our paid subscribers, which starts from one or two dollars a month. So it's really easy to get started with that. And it's something that will not be released outside of our paid membership area. So there is no way this is going to be something you'll be nope. able to hear. If you want more tasty taco talk. Yes. You got to What's what money starts with T? You got to you got to give us the there's no money. The tamole. The tamole. <laughs> you got to hand over the tamole. One or two dollars a month. If you want more tasty taco talk, you got to hand over the tamale. Whatever that is, it's the closest it thing money. to money. It means money. Yeah, sure. It means money. I, I just made it mean money. <laughs> Why not? That's how new words get invented, right? Tamale. Tamale. And the taco style we're going to be discussing in this bonus episode is tacos de cabeza, 
which actually means head tacos, specifically beef head. But before you run screaming, it's nowhere near as scary as it sounds. Actually, it's one of our favorites. It really is. I have to admit it. And let's face it, if you've ever eaten a factory-produced hamburger, you've probably already eaten meat from beef heads anyway. You know they just throw the bits in. They, whatever's left over, they're throwing it all in there all together to make your hot dogs and your hamburger meat God and all that what's sort going of stuff. Into that. Your meat pies. God knows what's in a meat pie. Nobody knows. At least with Tacos de Cabeza, you know exactly what you're getting in each taco because you can order the part of the beef head that you want. Exactly. From luxurious beef tongue, which really is one of the best tacos available. Apparently, you've never actually tried a real taco until you've tried a beef tongue taco. That is the number Ask one. Ask a local. They'll agree. To the uh, succulent cheek meat which is rich and delicious. That's my favorite. And the incredibly decadent sweetbreads, which that's uh, actually my favorite. I like that the best. It, I don't know. There's just something overpoweringly... <sighs> something about those sweetbreads just melts in your mouth and it's beautiful so we are going to dive in and explore the history and flavor of a dish that really makes sure no part of the cow is wasted which i like i don't like wastage if you're gonna be a meat eater then i think you should embrace eating all of that meat all of that animal yeah definitely including those head tacos which is pretty much the best way to use a beef head in my opinion mm -hmm. and so yes this bonus episode is only available for our paid subscribers and you can jump in if you're already a paid subscriber and access this now but if not then head straight to foodfuntravel.com extras and from as little as one or two dollars a month you can get that right away plus a whole bunch of extra access to new episodes before they come out on the main feed. Sometimes months in advance, we're putting out like half of the season before we release it all to the greater public. So you can get all that way before everybody else, as well as helping us, most importantly, keep the show on the air. Yeah. We just really would like to have time to 100% put our efforts into producing more episodes for you. So if we don't have to do our other blogging work, then we can just be podcasting and we need your help to do that. Yep, so head to foodfuntravel.com slash extras to learn more about how to sponsor the show. It's really easy. But if you just can't afford a dollar a month, is there another option? Yes, of course there is. We appreciate any way that you can help us out. So if you can give us money, we love you forever. If you can't, we love you still. But um, head on over to foodfuntravel.com slash the dish and jump on and subscribe to our mailing list. And that's going to keep you up to date with future releases and other fun foodie stuff we send you as well. All right, until next time, where we'll be bringing you more tasty dishes and the histories and the delicious flavors of them. <laughs> All right, until then, keep drooling. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.